Hello, world. This is your host, Hacker Mike, on the most beautiful morning. <clears throat> we have a completely clear sky. This is the second day of cold that I'm wearing a jacket. But we have uh, Venus and Mars and all the stars are clear to see. And it's a real treat to be up this early. Five thirty in the morning, September twelfth, and this will actually be episode. Whew. I'm pretty sure it's episode ninety. Or 91, which is pretty amazing. That will get produced so much random garbage in such a short amount of time. We started this podcast around January. And um, it's gotten 450 listens. Average of five users. Listeners, it's probably about. So you're one of a few select group who's actually listening to me. So thank you. Whew. Today, um, I don't have an exact topic. I do want to cover the uh, theory of insecurity. exploitation of computer code um, lang language security or langsec and um, <clears throat> so I'll just go off the top of my head but um, I'm really getting back into mathematics since we had this uh, <clears throat> topic on the history of philosophy and we covered uh, Frege and his Begriffsschrift. I've been really um, <clears throat> attacking the problem of... <clears throat> the theory of computer science once again. And I have this great book, which is the uh, history of the algorithm. And it starts off with the Sumerians play tablets, and it ends with um, Turing's paper. And it covers Frege, and it covers um, all of that. Gödel's incomplete, incompleteness, uh, proof, or theory. So I really have to uh, study that some more 
and I might even do my own uh, my own podcast on that topic. I mean, my own podcast. We have our own podcast right here. You're listening to it. I might dedicate some episodes to that topic because it is quite fascinating once you can wrap your head around it. So, I won't pretend to understand it all. But the basic idea is that some things are undecidable. Okay. But uh, I don't want to have these huge long pauses, these think pauses. I'm going to have to work out. This is where we're going to get into having a better understanding of it. And um, it's not going to just happen here on the podcast. So let's talk about that. Stream of consciousness is great. Stream of random is great. When you're talking about Gödel... Um, it's not going to work. Not for me. Because I have approached that topic many times and failed. And um, I think I need to develop first the concepts in a more clear manner. And... um, Yeah, so let's talk about what we can talk about easily. So he developed the recursive function for the first time. What? And he developed that with arithmetic and numbers. So, yeah, long pauses, guys, but no one likes these long pauses. But I'm just having a sip of my coffee. I just woke up. We're just booting up here, guys. So let's talk about something lighter, okay? Or I'll put it on pause and wait for me to wake up. We're seven minutes, 27 seconds into this. We haven't said too much. Profound. We could just start over. You know, I don't have to publish this particular piece. But that would be kind of cheating, wouldn't it? You know, we want to be honest here about our randomness. And our errors. Nobody's perfect. Nobody knows everything. 
but those guys on the on the podcast when they're talking about their books, you know, they are really fluent. And that fluidity, I'm sure, comes from working on something for so long. So I need to put in the work to actually get up to speed. But Langsec Ops. So let's just talk about some easy things real quick. So from what I understand from Gödel, he defines some recursive functions, and this one function is defined by that function. And um, it won't be apparently obvious if um, something is provable or not provable. Because you could have an infinite chain or humongous chain of functions calling each other, right? Like this function could call that function, etc., 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 and then in the end, um, the function couldn't be decidable or couldn't be provable. So, you know, when we talked about encryption, that we really can't understand much about it about what's going on in the context, well, it's kind of like that, where something small that's broken, you might not find it like the needle in the haystack. It might take you a long time just to figure out if something is not decidable, but they also said You'll never find out automatically if it's not decidable, okay? So that's the crux of it. It'll take, it'll never terminate. A program to prove whether something is decidable or not will never, ever, ever get to the end. So the world of logic won't ever be able to solve that. You need some higher understanding. So you need to break out of the automated reasoning and automated logic to understand that. To jump up to another level, to break out of the system. So, now when we get to LangSecOps, or weird machines, so the whole idea of the weird machine is that someone can control this weird machine. A weird machine is basically a hacked system or an exploitable system where if you feed it information, you feed it information that's intended for something, that looks like it's intended for something else, or the program is intended for something else, but you get to do what you want by some kind of flaw. And um, this generally happens when a 
program is too general, not specific to a purpose. Not specific to a purpose. When you have like an, a REPL, a read eval loop in your program um, that will take any input and do something with it, those are generally turned into weird machines. So that's what I definitely remember from that. Um, so don't make your programs too generic, otherwise they can get hacked. Be, be cautious of any generic evaluation function. Because in the end, the Turing machine is a generic evaluation function. Okay. And you can't really prove a system to be secure or not. So this is where it all ties together in some way. Okay? So maybe we should just cover the basics. A Turing machine is, um, the classic machine has a tape, an infinite tape, and on that tape it has data or numbers. And it can um, <clears throat> move the head of the tape to any position in the. On it. Well, it's got a tape reader. And the tape reader can be positioned by an instruction. So you have an instruction saying, please position the tape reader at this position. And then you can write or read a byte or a number to the tape or from the tape. And then you can interpret that number as an instruction or as data and do operations like add and they've proven that the basic Turing machine or Van Neumann architecture is basically you need to have an if and a jump so the jump is the move the head of the tape it's the peak and the poke and the um, if is a comparison operator you say if this condition holds if this number is greater than that. Um, if these two bits are set, generally it's an AND or not AND. The simplest one. simplest one so and then with those simple constructs you can construct a loop a loop is like for each while while the iterator is 
see like the iterator is zero while the iterator and also you need registers um, to store values so the iterator would be is a register and you could set that to zero as well an assignment say like start the counter at zero and then for each number between zero and 10 you do a loop you do something and then at the end you have an instruction that's good you increment the um, the counter so you have to also get the increment function of course And then, um, if that number is uh, greater than than 10, then you stop. So you have that if again. So that's how you can implement the, the loop, the for loop, um, using a jump. So at the end, you would say if the number is greater than 10, or if it's less than 10, then go up to the beginning of the loop again. So jump back to the loop with a conditional jump. So that's how assembly language works. It doesn't have a while loop or for loop. Those are all just language constructs. So, so those are some basics. Um, yeah. It's going to be a beautiful day. The sun's starting to come up. You can see the light on the horizon. <clears throat> so, those are some basic ideas of what we're talking about. Obviously, I'm not doing a great job at explaining them. Okay, so I think now at 20 minutes we're going to cut and um, I'm going to pre start preparing this uh, talk that really changed the way I was thinking about the um, avoiding eval loops.
the Occupy language talk from the Chaos Computer Club. And the um, Chaos Computer Club is a German group, um, and they really made their name to fame, claim to fame, when some of their members uh, were involved in hacking NASA with the KGB. And there's a great movie, 23, a German movie, not the uh, Jim Carrey one. But they have all types of uh, meetups and talks, and uh, it's quite the um, it's quite the prestigious uh, hacker and security group. Um, and they also fight for you know, digital privacy and security and all that. I went to some of their meetings in Germany, and um, they have a yearly conference, like DEFCON. And um, yeah, it's quite interesting. I, it's really weird how Germany and America are so different, though. In terms of like these group and club structures, you really don't see the same things over here. It's structured quite differently, and that will be an interesting topic to talk about. But at the risk of boring you guys, I'm going to now cut the tape. So, this was my intro. Thanks for listening, and let's listen to someone else who's more coherent than I. All right, so the first clip is Meredith, and she's going to talk about how protocols, communication protocols, should not be Turing complete. Like we just talked about, we just talked about having that jump operator, that uh, move tape head operator, and that really is the essence of the exploit. Um, that they can move the tape head anywhere they want, the, the attacker. <clears throat> Good morning. And uh, that is what we're talking about here as the um, a key um, a key thing where the attacker can, if you can move the tape head, um, you can cause any other uh, code to be executed and create arbitrary execution. Now, um, the question is, how does that happen? And really, uh, that happens when you allow arbitrary code to be uh, read in and executed. So, and she's saying that these are happening on the protocol level and that we need formal languages, which are basically deterministic, deterministic systems that will prevent, um, that will prevent bad uh, code from being introduced. 
Now to bring this back to Goodall, if the guy, so basically Girdle was attacking this one guy who created this humongous foundations of mathematics and said, well, we're going to prove that all of um, math can be implemented as logic and proved and to be correct. And then, well, he came up and said, well, what if I have a statement that says this statement is not correct? And then I define a recursive function uh, based upon it. That's what I understood so far. So, um, when we get to the, when we get to the, um, the language, right, if the guy said, I have this system of mathematics, and I have a language, a deterministic language, that will exclude um, things that are not true. It only solves a class of math. It doesn't solve all of math. It only solves the math statements that are... Well, see, this is where we get into how do you exclude them. And... Um, really about reducing the expressivity and how much you can express so that's what basically a formal language will do it'll uh, define exactly what the inputs are allowed to be and what form they can take Okay, well, let's play this clip. We're going to examine from first principles what it is about exploits that makes them exploits in the first place, and how we can use this systematic understanding to design and implement software in which, to borrow a turn of phrase from Dan Kaminsky, entire classes of bugs simply don't exist. But before I get going, I want to remark on the other talk this Congress that focuses on Turing machines, Cory Doctorow's talk yesterday on the coming war on general computation. You're going to hear a lot in the next hour about certain hazards of Turing complete protocols, and I need to make clear that what I'm inveighing against is Turing machine computational power in very specific places, namely the communication boundaries between Turing complete systems. Your CPU needs to be able to perform arbitrary computation. ICMP Echo does not. So, so that's an important distinction, and please keep it in mind. But more important than that are Corey's spot-on observations about how the sausage gets made, how lawmakers and vendors conspire to herd users into walled gardens where, oh, by the way, the folks doing the herding can lock out competitors and bleed those users to their heart's content. It's the oldest game in the book, and it's already underway in the United States. Right now, there's an initiative under development called NISTIC, the National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace, which is really just the old carrot and stick game aimed at conning citizens into voluntarily giving up any possibility of anonymity online, which is really the same as free speech online when you get right down to it, by holding out the carrot of quote unquote safe walled gardens like the iOS app store and social networks like Google Plus where the price of admission is your offline identity. 
backed up with a stick made from the specter of spam and malware and evil cyber criminals on the filthy, nasty internet. And no matter how rotten the carrot really is, the thing about human psychology is once someone has bought into lofty and nebulous promises about matters such as security, it becomes really hard to convince them that the carrot cake is a lie. So our other option is to break the stick, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I actually owe this observation to my husband, Len Sassaman, who passed away back in July. Uh, Len started out in, uh, in this world as uh, an anonymity and privacy researcher. Uh, he was working on that at Kyle Leuven under Bart Purnell. Um, but in 2009, he shifted focus to the language theoretic security work that uh, I had started back in 2005 because he became convinced that the future of an open internet is completely dependent on us smoothing out the attack surface and taking away the ability of repressive governments to hold this, the, to hold this threat over our heads. All right. So if all you take away from this talk is this, I'm going to be really, really happy. First of all, the vast majority of vulnerabilities come from protocol and message format designs that require you to solve problems that are really not solvable if you want to process them securely, you know, putting yourself into a catch-22 that you cannot escape from. When you try to set yourself up against the, the laws of physics, um, you fail. End of story. But the good news is that from a design perspective, we can route around this. We just have to think about how we design inputs and outputs in terms of formal languages and conduct our implementation accordingly. So this next clip, she's going to start with saying that we need a classification system that we can use. We need to have a deeper understanding an elegant um, description, a mathematical description of security. And she's going to go, uh, go back to what we were just talking about, Gödel and, and Turing. Um, now she doesn't give us this de definition just yet, but she's just defining the need for it. I mentioned the laws of physics earlier, but really our physicists are people like Bertrand Russell, Kurt Gödel, Alan Turing, the guys who tried to universalize mathematics from axioms. Now the problem that we as security researchers want to solve is more focused than the general problem that they wanted to solve. But we start in the same way, which is by formalizing the question, what is insecurity? Is it holes for sneaking in executable code? I mean, that tends to be how people look at it, but that's looking at everything in isolation. Um, Furthermore, you don't necessarily have to have uh, an obvious hole in order to execute, you know, say, a return-oriented programming attack. Um, memory corruption, buffer overflows, um, in-band signaling like Travis Goodspeed's packet-in-packet packet stuff, um, capabilities issues, access control issues, all of the above. You know, none of that is really sufficiently general and also sufficiently and also sufficiently descriptive. Um, you know, I, I come from linguistics as a background, um, and we have this concept in, in linguistics of elegance, where an elegant description of a language is one that generates exactly strings that belong in the language, sentences that belong in the language, and none of the ones that don't. 
Now, if, if you think about you know, the, those possible causes of insecurity that we just looked at, you know, Wikipedia is not much better. This, this, this laundry list here is just all over the map. Um, and if the classification looks arbitrary, what this is really telling us, you know, this is a lesson from the natural philosophers here. If the classification looks arbitrary, this means that we really don't understand the, the structure and the common origin of the phenomena that we're seeing. Um, so Jorge Luis Borges um, has, this, has this great description of uh, the classification of animals. You know, those that are belonging to the emperor, those that are embalmed, tame, suckling pigs, sirens, fabulous ones, stray dogs, those that are included in the present classification, and bonus points for anybody who gets what paradox that is. Um, you know, again, there's, there's no system to this. There's no rhyme, there's no reason to it. What we need is a way to go from the arbitrary Lamarckian classification where, you know, whales and hoofed mammals are, you know, sitting there in the same clade under reptiles of all damn things, um, and, move to an, and move to an understanding like Watson and Crick's understanding of DNA that has led us to the science of cladistics, where we treat, uh, you know, where, where we treat classes of, or where, where we treat species um, as classes based on uh, common descent. You know, it's true that we can and we should classify exploits by similarity, but if we only look at the surface similarity and not the underlying structural similarity, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Unexpected execution caused by crafted inputs. That is the theory of exploitation or insecurity. So a program should have defined inputs and validate them, and then it should do have to find outputs as well. So we talked about functional programming as having a function that has a domain of the inputs and a range of the outputs. And those are sets. An unexpected input is a input outside of the domain of inputs and which causes the execution um, to output something else or actually to go somewhere else. So we don't even have the concept of a function being um, its path of execution, but its path of execution will then go into a completely different area in the unexpected execution. So we have the expected execution area and we have it going outside of that. But it's all caused by the unexpected crafted inputs, which are very hard to validate. So that's what we get into, as I was trying to say before, the principle of Mathematica is like, well, we can prove all math. It's like, no, you cannot prove all math. You can prove a well-defined area of math, but you cannot prove all math because someone's going to craft an input to your system that's going to break it, namely Gödel. <clears throat> and he does it in a quite a short period of time and destroys your years and years and years of work. Well, it doesn't destroy it, but 
you know, I think I'd like to go back and see what the guy did and see if we can salvage some of that. It looks, it sounds interesting stuff. Uh, sounds like interesting stuff. So, um, let's play the clip. This we're we're not that good at deciding whether an input is valid or malicious and rejecting the uh, the and rejecting the malicious ones. We're not we we don't have a good idea of how to trust software not to do certain things. Because how do you predict the unpredictable? Exploitation is simply unexpected computation caused by crafted inputs. So now she's gonna say what we were just talking about, that the undecidable input is part of the uh, theory of language and computation that in some cases you'll never be able to decide and you have to basically avoid those classes of inputs. So when you're asking the question is it a good input or is it a bad input, well I mean this is not a theoretical problem. Um, we've been talking about this in computability theory for you know 50 odd years now. Uh, we have this concept of undecidable problems, problems that you cannot solve regardless of how much computational power you have. Um, and some of these, and, and some, some undecidable problems have to do with recognition of inputs. You know, no general algorithm for solving these problems exists. Okay, so this next section, she brings up two points. One, that once your protocol is sufficiently complex, you can't decide if the input is valid or not, and you can't even decide if one implementation of the protocol is the same or valid as the other. So basically, if your protocol is, let's say, execute an arbitrary command like SSH, then you're never going to be able to decide if an input packet is safe or not in terms of like the shell command or what's being executed. Um, I'm not talking about the secure side of it. <clears throat> so let's, uh, and then she says that uh, you have a Turing complete language which has the halting problem, which is basically you don't know if it will ever terminate. because the input can be undecidable. So, basically she's saying you want to avoid turn complete languages in your inputs, input validation or input languages. So you do not want to have the full capabilities um, of a Turing machine. You don't want to allow them to move the tape head to an arbitrary position and execute arbitrary code. All right. So how does how do, how does undecidability apply here? Well, in the single component case, some protocol formats are sufficiently complex that simply being able to discern a good input from a bad input is undecidable. And furthermore, 
Some protocols are so complex that determining whether implementation A and implementation B handle them in the same way is also undecidable. All right, so we talk about recognizers as algorithms that examine an input string and determine whether that input string belongs in the language or not. For sub-Turing classes of languages, and we'll get into what those are in just a minute, um, the answer is either yes or no. For Turing-complete languages, the halting problem says the answer is yes, no, or maybe. Okay, so now we have the definition of the weird machine, which is when the when the uh, input fails to be recognized as a as false, turns into a maybe, and the well, basically, when your input recognition is not sufficient enough to determine that it's bad. Because it's a Turing-complete language, you can execute anything in the end. And then <clears throat> everything that the input processor exposes can then be used by the attacker to create a weird machine. Which is the unintended execution machine. So when input recognition fails, the code on, on, the, on the inside of your, um, of your protocol, you know, the, the state machine of your protocol, is going to receive something that it wasn't expecting. Um, any primitives that it exposes can be uh, programmed, essentially, with input from an attacker to trigger memory corruption or implicit data flows, and a weird machine emerges. Um. I think at this point, dear listener, if you've listened to all my episodes, I have gone over the idea of the microessential function, the foundational function. And I talked about creating an eval function in Ansible to deploy into uh, the cloud. And you will notice that that, of course, is exploitable. And in some cases, we want exploitable functions um, because we want to be able to exploit um, another system. So by embedding an eval loop into another system, we opened it up to being exploited, meaning if your cloud provider allows you an API or an arbitrary execution that allows you to do arbitrary executions, then you know we want to be able to do that um, but only if it belongs to us. And after we're done, well, we want to remove it or we want to make sure that it only is executable by us 
and then any data that you feed it, it becomes very um, <clears throat> sensitive. Now, when we talk about you know letting someone deploy code to your cloud, you know how do you trust them? And how do you validate them? And this gets into the question of decidability. Can you even decide if the code that they're giving you is um, safe or not? And uh, that becomes very, very tricky, of course. So these are just some issues to think about. And uh, we're going to continue with listening. Well, I hope you guys have forgiven me so far for my bumbling in the beginning of this episode because now we're getting into some good stuff. I kind of feel like Joe Rogan talking to someone sometimes, and the person I'm talking to is doing this recording, is the uh, person I'm clipping, because I'm kind of having a conversation with them. I mean, I listened to this before, but you got to listen to it. You got to refresh your um, concepts because the mind needs uh, constant training and refreshing to uh, maintain its uh, neural networks. And that's why we dream as well, to refresh our memories. <clears throat> so, wow, that's pretty deep. So, um, she's saying that um, exploitation is the setup and programming and usage of a weird machine. And I think we can also, uh, we can also look at that um, from another perspective later we'll talk about this more but how people are uh, being also exploited with contracts that they don't think that they don't understand they haven't read or um, bosses that uh, give you uh, bad inputs and um, I think, yeah, we can um, really uh, learn something from this. This is a horrible design pattern. I know, vaguely understood input languages are the mother of Oday. And a weird machine is born. <laughs> An adorable little root shell just pops right out. So, as Halvar said, exploitation is setting up, instantiating, and programming a weird machine. Okay, so now, well, first of all, I want to say that Anchor FM app has a little bug. Like right now, it doesn't display that I'm recording exactly. There's a little bug in the screen. I should make a screenshot of that. Um, where... while it's uploading an mp3 if I hit record sometimes it gets uh, messed up and it's recording the audio but it doesn't appear as such and I have to close the app 
and then the recording will appear later. So it looks like a bug, but they seem to not lose the recording, which is important. <clears throat> so now she's going to introduce a very important concept from Turing, where we have the halting problem to decide if the input will ever terminate. And if you feed a Turing machine another Turing machine as an input, it will never be able to decide if its input program will terminate because it could also be fed the third, the second Turing machine could be fed a third Turing machine recursively, for example. So that's bad. So the Turing machine was the mathematical model that Alan Turing came up with to study the limits of what it is possible for a computation engine to perform. And he was able to formalize a class of problems for which no Turing machine can solve them. Um, the, uh, the initial uh, example problem that he described uh, is known as the halting problem because it turns on the question of whether a given Turing machine will halt, which is to say return yes or no, or end up in that infinite loop maybe state where you never get an answer back. Because you know, if the, even if the answer is yes or no, you have no idea how long you're going to have to wait. And if the answer is maybe, that answer is forever, but you're not going to know. All right. So if you say, I can take a universal, I can take a universal Turing machine, and I can execute another Turing machine on it, and that, that universal Turing machine is going to decide if the input will ever terminate? Fail. Does not happen. If someone tries to convince you that they can do that, they are either stupid or malicious. So this is an important concept. And this is where just working hard will not fix it. If you're confronted with a theoretical impossibility where it's been proven that you will never, the algorithm will never halt. It doesn't matter how much work you put into it, how long you slave away, you'll never, ever, ever fix it. And let's be honest, a lot of the situations we're in at work are exactly that. It's an endless problem, it will never be fixed. We can just patch it up as we go and hope we're not around when it blows up up reducing to an undecidable problem, um, which means that there really is no way to, uh, you know, to fix that problem as it exists. We can avoid it, um, but fixing it requires a redesign. But there is no 80-20 engineering solution for the halting problem. If, so, if somebody is trying to sell this to you, then run away. If someone bought it on your behalf, fire them because you don't want to be around when it breaks. You know, and this is counterintuitive. You know, we're used to seeing more effort improve the result, but at the end of the day, you don't want to be the person who ends up slaving away for the rest of their life, trying to just pour more and more and more and more effort down a bottomless hole. Can a machine determine if an arbitrary mathematical statement is true? Nope, sorry, it doesn't work. So an arbitrary mathematical statement is too expressive, 
and can contain a Turing machine, basically. It can contain an arbitrary execution. So we came up with recursive functions and the ability to Well, Gödel showed that um, he could come up with uh, an arbitrary mathematical statement that is a contradiction, and um, where he's like, this statement is not true, or the set of statements that are true, or that are unprovable, and. Um, those will never halt. So basically, um, you can't mechanically determine if a statement is, uh, will halt, uh, will uh, be true or false. And that's the same as saying whether or not the execution will halt. Because the machine to determine if it's true or not will never complete. And I guess it could go into a recursive uh, tailspin of some kind. <clears throat> so you could then limit it to can it determine within a finite time whether it's true or false. But at the end of that time, you might have to increase the timeout over and over again. So this gets into a really big problem. We're going to have to apply higher, bigger guns at the problem than just a machine. All right. A little bit more about uh, the, the history of halting, just to sort of give you an idea where we're coming from. So back in the 17th century, uh, a guy named Leibniz, um, you, you might know him as the, one of the inventors of calculus, asked the question, is it possible for a machine to determine whether an arbitrary mathematical statement is true? And he, was kind of, he, he kind of worked on that in isolation during his life. Um, people thought he was a bit of a nut. Um, and then uh, Hilbert poses this again in 1928 um, in a list of... Um, in a, in a list of problems that that he believed, you know, if we could if we could answer all of these problems, then we would have a complete understanding of mathematics, and we wouldn't, you know, we we could call mathematics done, and we could move on. Um, so Church and Turing work on this independently for a while, and both of them come up with the answer: Nope, sorry, doesn't work. I was hoping to um, have this recording for my uh, sister who is interested in learning more about security and um, I was really hoping to make it easier to understand I don't know if I'm doing that and I don't know if I'm deeply understanding all of this myself or if I get easily confused but um, the um, the uh, Proof by construction, well, obvious proofs, and um, <clears throat> she's going to say that a program is a proof, and proofs are programs.
so that's interesting and I haven't heard this before so I hope that she's gonna explain it more all right so I mentioned the Curry the Curry Howard correspondence earlier programs are proofs and vice versa this means that an exploit is also a proof and it's the best kind of proof because it's a proof by construction and those are really fucking easy to understand um, we're working on establishing a formal duality of this so that we can like convince the academics of it but you know I, part of why I love proofs by construction is that you can basically just look at them and go oh that's obvious that's easy to show people how that works all right okay so now she's going to introduce different classes of languages where finite state automata are basically the most basic types and you can think of them as let's just say JSON. Everyone was JSON? Well, that's basically could be recognized by a finite state automata. Now, <clears throat> I want to talk about Ansible here for a second as a recursive language. And um, it allows for inclusion or recursion, which can cause more problems. Now, um, what I wanted to get into and what I'm thinking about is, you know, can we interpret Ansible scripts and CloudFormation scripts and Terraform scripts for security and evaluate how secure they are? And because they're recursive, you might not be able to. Now, Girdle defined these recursive functions. And um, if you have a Turing machine in a Turing machine, that's another recursion. So I'm slowly getting my uh, head around what it's, what she's exactly talking about. Um, but we're gonna have to dig, do some more digging into this. All right, so as we said earlier, inputs are a language, some languages are harder to recognize than others, and for some of them, recognition is undecidable. So what kinds of languages do we even have? Well, there's a hierarchy. Noam Chomsky came up with it. So the simplest class of languages are the regular languages. Uh, you might also know them as regular expressions or finite state automata. Uh, then there's the context-free languages, the context-sensitive languages, and the recursively enumerable languages, which are, and the recursively enumerable languages are the ones that are equivalent to Turing machines. Um, these categories are hierarchical, and different categories have different properties that we can use to our benefit. Okay, so finite state machines just have very simple nesting. Um... Okay, big mistake there, guys, because you cannot parse JSON using a, you cannot parse JSON using a regular expression, just like you can't parse HTML, because they're recursive nested lists and recursively nested uh, structures. So anytime that you're gonna actually need a recursive function to interpret the data, then you'll need a recursive function to parse it as well. So my bad. Now she's gonna go on and talk about the different classes, like if you need a, uh, a stack, or if you need a context, 
which is like a size header, for example. And then she's going to go on to make the Turing machine equivalent to the halting problem. Objects. Trying to match recursively nested structures with, with regular expressions fails, which is why when you try to use regular expressions to parse HTML, Zalgo comes out of the walls and eats your soul. <laughs> if you want to match recursively nested structures, you can do this with, with what's called a pushdown automata, which you obtain by taking a finite state machine and adding a stack to it. And then you can balance parentheses to arbitrary depth and, and everything's golden. But there are other, there, there are other properties that, uh, that we see in protocols that, uh, that don't fall into this category. If you have a protocol with a length field in it, like, oh, I don't know, HTTP, TCP, pretty much every protocol out on the internet just about, uh, with the exception of ATM, that one's regular, which is kind of awesome, but anyway. Um, those require a context-sensitive grammar. Um, you know, if, if there is some metadata that is necessary in order to interpret the rest of the data, then that's when you're context sensitive. And finally, you're Turing complete if you are saying, is this input some program that produces some given result? That's undecidable. Um, a guy named Rice uh, formulated this in the term, uh, uh, in what's called Rice's theorem, which, is, which reduces to the halting problem. All right. So I'm going to skip over a bunch of this great material and you're going to have to listen to or actually watch the video because the video contains some great slides and it's some great visuals, which I can't reproduce here. So we're just going to focus today on this issue of, you know, computation and what is necessary computation what is the um, class of the language? How much computation do you need to process, recognize, and uh, store the language or, uh, or work on it? And um, I've been really thinking about my own introspector project, which is processing the um, Turing complete language. Well, in the end, is a Turing complete language of the compiler data. And I'm going to have to rethink exactly what I'm doing using these concepts if I haven't done it already, but I have not. And maybe I am grinding the infinite millstone with a non-deterministic end. This is something that I've been afraid of for quite some time, and I haven't really confronted it, so I guess you're going to hear it here uh, on this podcast. And I guess there's nothing wrong with wasting 20 years of your life grinding on the millstone, as long as you get off that millstone, right? or at least understand why it's wrong and make amends. Maybe my whole design is wrong. So I'm gonna have to formalize what the hell I'm doing. And that's what the, um, 
the guy said in the dark data, he said, you have to have an exact definition of what you're trying to do. And maybe we can apply this whole idea of dark data to undecidable, right? So we can define exactly what is decidable and what is undecidable. Well, on the, on the case of the um, compiler, we're not validating the input of the user, but the user's input can be recursive and it is recursive and it can be uh, turn complete and it is turn complete. So the actual programs are turn complete and we definitely have multiple nested recursive Turing machines in the compiler itself. As we talked about, you know, layers and layers and layers of machines and layers and layers and layers of, of languages. So, um, yeah, but I think we can deal with them as long as we keep them at safe distance. All right. Well, this is a long introduction to a short clip and, you know, I'm talking more than she is right now, but, uh, I'm slowly wrapping this um, episode up on the topic of security, and I think we're going to switch topics now, as we do in the stream of random. Um, it's a random show, so, you know, I don't want to exploit you, but you're going to have to deal with unexpected input on this show, okay? Um, so I think we're going to take a break soon, uh, from, from this, uh, talk and we're going to go on to something lighter, something easier to understand. And, um, I'll leave uh, the listening of the rest of the, the rest of this, um, great, great, uh, video to you, the listener, if you're interested, and uh, please feel free to come back to me and yell at me for all the things I did wrong on this show, like saying that JSON is um, parsable by a, a regex, because it's not. So stupid me. I can't believe I... But you know, I'm going to leave that in here because uh, that's the way we roll here. We don't edit our stupidity out that much. I did do one edit yesterday where I was struggling with a word. I just cut out my attempts to uh, to say it. So I'm not going to even try right now to say that word. The unspeakable word. <laughs> well, I guess that just shows you I'm human. All right. Now get ready for a topic switch, guys. But please, no more Turing complete input languages. Don't let the Turing beast devour her safe computing future. <laughs> okay, well, you're gonna have to actually put up with me talking about this topic for a little bit longer because I have some things to say. So let's get into some things I do know about I can talk about fluently. So the Gödel, from what I understand from Gödel Escherbach, the book from Douglas Hofstetter, is that 
it comes down to the liar's paradox. Okay, and I can explain that perfectly. If I have a statement and I write down, this statement is false, right? If that statement is true, and the computer evaluates it to be true, then that statement is then set to be false. If that statement is false, then the statement is set to be true. And you could just go back and forth with it being true and false all day long because you'll never you'll never decide if it's true or false with a simple logic program. It's a paradox. So it escapes the level of logic. It goes to the next level. <clears throat> now, um, Gödel defined a set of a set of um, statements or a set of numbers that are not provable, and he defined that recursively. We'll have to go into the details. I have the book at home, but I'm assuming that somehow he's gotten into encoding the numbers, encoding the system into numbers, etc., etc., etc. So. I'm a little bit fuzzy on that. I'm not going to talk about things I don't know about completely. But um, I do know that you can encode things and make multiple layers and multiple levels of languages. So even if we have a even if we have a simple language that's finite state automata that doesn't allow recursion. Um, <clears throat> it would be possible to, in theory, encode more information into that language by having another layer of language on top of it. Um, so, let's say you decipher the first layer of the language, you get out your regular, it matches as a regular uh, Expression finite state doesn't have recursion, but the language, the resulting parse tree, could contain hidden in it another language that could, in theory, be interpreted. Okay, so you could hide or embed a language statement into another, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be actually executed. Right? It's just the payload then. So, um, if we stick to simple languages, uh, then the payload could contain much more complicated data. It could contain a Turing complete machine, let's say, described using a finite state on a meta. But it wouldn't necessarily be um, executable. So that's kind of where we're getting into um, this self-referentiality. Are you able to reference the statement? Can a statement reference itself and make statements about itself? That's what Hofstetter was talking about. 
like this statement is true or this statement is false. That kind of gets into the whole, um, that kind of opens up the door to uh, undecidability. So, let's uh, stop here and, and think some more. So, I've been thinking about music, and I just have this other podcast I was queuing up to play, and he's talking about how music affects us so deeply. And I think that music also could be considered to be some kind of powerful Turing-complete language or some kind of... And we're going to have to actually go deeper than Turing-complete and machine... Because people aren't machines, right? And we're able to think about things and reason about things more than just an automated process. But even then we're going to get into issues of um, citability and um, influence, where music can influence our behavior and it can contain uh, messages or commands that we don't understand. Not only music, but audio input, like podcasts, like this podcast. So, how do you know if this podcast is trying to influence you negatively? Right, so that we get into the liar's paradox. Like, if it was trying to influence you, then uh, would I tell you? And if I told you, can you believe me? You know, and these are all these types of uh, funny questions that we get into. Um, you know, if the government is lying to you, would it tell you? And if it told you, would, it, would you believe it? Right? So, we're also getting into the whole question of truth and determining truth as being a difficult topic that we cannot take lightly. Okay? And music is just another form of expression. And we have genetics as a form of expression, as a language that's interpreted. Well, what if the genes lie? And they do that all the time. Like, one animal will evolve a phenotype that tricks another animal, right? Like a camouflage. Oh, I look like a leaf, or I look like a poisonous frog. And this looks like this path is flooded, and I'm not going to get through. God damn it. So you hear the splashing sound, that's me falling in the water. Boy, this is some kind of live podcast here, right? I'm interactively climbing over some bushes to avoid falling into a pool of water. So... I think I'm going to talk to some uh, these tree guys to dump some of their wood um, back here. The wood chips, they can just put it right here 
on these trails. We've got tons of wood, and I think the city should ask for people to put wood chips um, in certain spots to uh, make walking paths. That's Phil. Because damn, we have a lot of trees here, and we got a lot of puddles on the side of the road. We don't have sidewalks everywhere. So, I think that uh, this whole undecidability and, and genes conflicting and being reinterpreted, I think we're going to have to... I mean, what if the interpreters are the... What if the interpreters are the... Um, We talked about interpreters yesterday. He, he said that there's the one-to-one -one copies, and there's more complicated uh, transformations into uh, RNA. And RNA is then executed. So, anyway, uh, I guess viruses spread by injecting themselves into the body's uh, text and causing an unintended execution. Um, so yes, we did take a break from that, uh, that input, that recording, and now we're going to just think about this a little bit longer instead of switching to another podcast because I'm so deep in thought right now. Time for another break. Let's think about it. Okay, so here's what my thoughts are. Basically, if we have a basic input language and then we need to, we read that in, it's like, okay, this is straightforward, easy language, but then that language um, <clears throat> produces another statement in a new language, right? Like a more complicated language, let's say. So the output of the one language is really a statement in a new language. And when we get into that situation, we don't know how deep this language nesting is going to get. Okay? And then it's undecidable. So if we have a, um, a language that's simple and we define some kind of uh, tree structure or recursive well, see abstract syntax trees are defined using a language but those trees then represent other languages and then those other languages can then represent abstract syntax trees which then can represent other languages so we get really Oh my god, this guy's front window smashed in. Yeah, towing and recovery. I guess that's why he smashed in. They took it. So, um... So we're going to get to the point where... 
you know, good example of this whole recursion that's never going to end. We've got some language in Python. Or some parser generator right? that can accept any input. And uh, that's represented by compiling some C program like Python. Right? But you've got you can implement deeper and deeper and deeper recursion um, that never ends. Right? So let's say I've got some Python program that can accept some input and then just do an eval on it, let's say. Okay. So it's perfectly valid Python, but when you run it, it produces any output at all. I mean, you can do anything with it. Um, that Python code that executes the eval is actually a C program. So when you're feeding this C program into the compiler, you're, you're not going to know that they're just going to produce a Python program that's interpreted in the C program. Right? Python is the interpreter. So basically, you're screwed. That you're never going to be able to validate the input because that input can then define a new language that defines a new language that defines a new language, etc., 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 in an endless uh, recursion. Right? So just think about that for a moment. Now, when we get to the question of the tree structure in the compiler, it could also be compiling itself. So we could have a tree that defines the tree, right? And uh, that's what I've been thinking about a lot over the years, is like, how does that all work, right? How, what is this thing that can hold itself, self-defining thing, look like? And um, what is the nature of it? Now, So we could think about a tree that can hold the definition of a tree that holds the different pieces of it. It's like, oh well, you know, the tree itself is just the name, and that's attached to a type definition, and that's attached to a type, and that type is a union of all the different things that it could be. Those are structures, nested structures with fields. And then those fields could then reference the tree itself and be any one of them. So tree that holds the definition of a tree up to the point of recursion could be seen as a simple thing. You know, we've got all these different structures, 
got all these different fields. We don't know the type of the fields. So that's all straightforward. Where it really gets complicated is when we implement then a recursive function where we have a pointer to any other type of tree. And that's actually also a mistake because these trees, they don't, they can't really point to any other type of tree. They're actually, it's actually kind of lazy to do it that way. Um, <clears throat> the real point is that it can point to a specific type of tree under specific circumstances. And that's where I get into the deeper analysis of uh, what's going on. So the name is going to point to an identifier or to a type declaration, but nothing else. And I'm thinking that's where we can type this thing down um, and make headway into actually uh, defining things. All right. Well, I just got some shopping done and um, picked up some 50% off food, which is pretty good. And uh, I also got prepared food like these, uh, what are they called? Brassicals? Brassicole. It's like uh, rollade and it's like a rolled beef with some stuff inside of it and pork. Um, and definitely would cost four or five times as much as I went to the restaurant. And I don't have to prepare it at all, so it's all ready to go. So that's real nice even comes in a little tray. Just plop it in the oven. So um, I was just talking to one of our listeners and uh, he was asking about, we were talking about contracts and how, um, you know, if you're working for a company and you don't really have a, a clearly defined uh, contract, then, you know, the exploitation or the, well, basically this theory of exploitation, meaning how um, they can ask you to do anything that you they want and also ask you to become compromised. That's basically baked into the system. And that's it. what's the intended purpose is. Um, like systems are the way they are because that's the way they want them to be. And people are in a bad position because that's the way, um, you know, the system was basically set up. So it really comes down to the question of who gets to define, um, who gets to define the, um, the terms. And are those advantageous to you or are they advantageous to, uh, the exploiter so if we can agree on things then we can define them tighter and that tightening okay well that's what I'm getting into these tree structures is the tightening of the definitions so I think we're going to end this podcast now and thanks for listening um, now it's time for a long walk home with a bag of uh, groceries I don't even bring my backpack, but uh, it'll be okay. Let's see how many steps we did. 18,000 steps.
but it should only be about 7,000 to get home. All right then, see ya.